Reminder that you're not being needy, you just have needs. My name is Andrea, and this is Adult Child. Welcome back to Adult Child, where we take a deep dive into the impact of growing up in a dysfunctional family. Ahoy, my dear shit show, shit show nation. What is up, folks? For any new listeners, my name is Andrea. I am a total and complete shit show. I'm a recovering alcoholic. I had a broken ass man picker, which I realized was because of my childhood. And the healing journey that transpired as a result of that painful realization is what led me to creating this podcast in my closet on the floor next to my cat's litter box. And this is where we talk about what to do when your childhood screwed you up a lot more than you thought it did. If you are new around here, we say fuck. You've been warned. Uh, We bring in a lot of humor into this podcast as well. Because I think it's so damn important that we learn to laugh and find humor in this painful yet rewarding healing journey that we are all on. So today we are joined by Dr. Jordan Wiggins. So I got connected to Jordan through friend of the pod, Tiffany Carter. So Jordan is a feminine burnout and intimacy coach, but don't worry, gentlemen, this conversation is 100% applicable to you as well. And Jordan is the CEO of the Pleasure Collective, which is a coaching community for women reclaiming their pleasure. She is the author of The Pink Canary, The Hidden Secret to Optimal Women's Wellness, and she teaches CEOs and successful women how to be as badass in the bedroom and relationships as they are in business. And today, per usual, we are diving into her childhood, uh, her dysfunctional childhood, I might add, how this negatively manifested in adulthood and the work that she's done to heal from it. I just want to add a disclaimer that she does discuss um, childhood sexual abuse, although it is not graphic, but she does mention it. We are discussing attachment styles as it relates to conflict resolution and ways of regulating your nervous system. Super fascinating. And last but not least, we're talking about the difference between being needy and having damn needs. And so before we dive into that, a few things. One, I wanted to just give a few tips for the holidays as um, I guess there will be an episode next week, uh, the day before Thanksgiving, but I thought maybe it would be more beneficial to have this conversation a week before Thanksgiving rather than a day before Thanksgiving. So just a few of my pointers, my tips, my tricks. Number one, the first two things are the most important. So number one is you don't have to do anything that you don't want to do. Okay. If it's miserable spending time with your family or with whomever, just know you don't have to do anything that you don't want to do. Number two, you can change your mind. So if it's, you know, the day before and you decide, "Uh, I don't know how I feel about this. You can change your damn mind. Now I don't suggest inviting like 30 people over to your house for Thanksgiving and then 30 minutes before everyone's supposed to arrive, um, canceling. I mean, you can change your mind then, but I, 
that probably wouldn't be the best thing unless it's like a legit <laughs> reason for that. A few more things. Set boundaries ahead of time. So maybe you are going to be around family and maybe you just want to limit the amount of time that you're spending with them. So instead of going and then at a certain point being like, we've got to go ahead of time, be like, hey, we're only going to be able to stay or I'm only going to be able to stay for two hours or whatever it is. So set expectations ahead of time. Um, next would be, and this is a tip that Barb Nangle, who's a boundaries coach, always recommends, and that is bookending. So set up a phone call with somebody in your recovery circle for before an event and after an event. Next would be always have an exit plan. So, you know, maybe things are going to go haywire. You don't want to be stuck uh, without transportation to leave. So just think about that. Like if you need to leave somewhere, if you're going to be somewhere where you potentially could be triggered and you need to leave, just think about that ahead of time. I would also think about ways in which you may want to respond to certain things. So maybe last year, you know, mom or dad or brother or sister made a really inconsiderate comment to you. Think about ways in which you would like to respond and last but not least, I just want to give a big push for, well, actually two more things. One, breath work. I have been trying to implement breath work in my day-to-day -day life. Uh, it is a game changer. It really, 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 really works. It's really helping to regulate my nervous system. I've been kind of feeling very dysregulated lately. Uh, and then the last plug, which is a great segue, you need to have community. What better time to damn the join shit show than right at the holidays when you know you're going to be triggered as hell? Am I right? <laughs> well, hopefully you won't be, but probably a lot of you will be, um, including myself. So this is my online support community where I host four weekly Zoom support groups. This is where you can connect with other fellow shit shows who are doing the damn work to heal, who have a personality, who have a sense of humor. This is a support system at your fingertips. There is discussion boards. There is the ability to message and chat with one another. If you are in a crisis and you need help, just send an SOS on the damn shit show app. And I guarantee you that somebody will get back to you. Uh, so I did just want to give a quick shout out to the newest members of the shit show. Thank you. Thank you to these fine ass shit shows. Carrie, Julie, another Carrie, Laura, Wendy, Karen, another Karen, Carol, Judy, Michael, Alicia, Kimberly, David, Ashley, Jules, Maria, Lisa, Lori, Katrina, Taylor, Rocky, Seamus, Joe, Stephanie, Michelle, Ashley, and Kiki. Thank you, thank you, thank you. How about the rest of you damn shit shows? Follow suit, see the link in the show notes to uh, join the community. Next, give me a little follow on the Insta, on the TikTok, at Adult Child Pod. And last but not least, give me a five-star rating on Apple and Spotify. I just like to say that I just sat down to record this. This is a one-shotter, folks. I didn't even stop. Killing it. Love you. Bye. All right, y'all. We have Dr. Jordan Wiggins. She's the CEO of the Pleasure Collective. She just started going into her childhood and I said, hold the damn phone. We got to actually have this on the podcast. So welcome. record. Yes. Record the damn thing. <laughs> hey, Andrea. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to have you. Are you familiar with the term adult child? I am an adult child. Yeah. And a shit show. 
Because you know what? A lot of people, I'm like, do you know what's the term adult child? And they're like, yeah, like I'm like a child and an adult. I'm like, no, that's not really what it means. But so you want, well, you want a Cole's notes on my trauma? Like am I? (laughs) (laughs) Well, first, let me ask you this. When did you have the awareness that your childhood was less than ideal? Always? No, definitely not. I remember getting called codependent by a therapist in my late 20s. And being like, the fuck you talking about? I'm not codependent. I'm in med school. I'm learning about health, health psychology. And I'm like, this person is whack. I was actually angry. And I had, my grandmother was a narcissist. I was raised in a narcissistic family system. When did you realize that your grandmother was a narcissist? As an adult. Okay. Let's start from the beginning. Okay. Go for it. I had sexual abuse by a family friend, like one of my parents' family friends growing up. At what age did that start? (sighs) 10. And was this something that you were always aware of, or this was like a repressed memory that came up later? It was something that I had told myself that I was okay. Mm. And because it didn't affect me, then therefore it wasn't abuse mm-hmm. and had gone to my parents with that and talked to them about it and was like minimized and denied and kind of written off. And that was in my late 20s. Like it had long stopped after that. But it took me that long to even have the courage to say anything because I feared I wouldn't be believed or nothing would be done about it. And nothing really was done about it. They remained friends. At what age did you bring it up? 27, the first time. And then probably 32 or 33 when I said, like, okay, enough's enough's enough. He's out of your life or I am situation. So that thankfully happened. But yeah, to have to even for it to get to that point, but you know, like people pleasing and keeping up appearances and all those things. And it was always just like, Jordan's fine. Jordan's, you know, doing really well and making us look really good. So she's fine. We don't need to worry about her. That's how it felt. Yeah. And I'm sure it's coming from a place of like, for them to acknowledge that, like, what does that say about them? You know? Yes. And so much shame of like that that was going on and they didn't know. And when I brought it up, they didn't handle it very well. And when I was pregnant, he was actually angry. Like it was like he owned my body and had possession over it. And like that I didn't ask him for permission. This is the level of messed up. And I screenshotted that and sent it to both my parents and was like, okay, you've got a choice now because like, I'm not going to let my daughter grow up in this messed up dynamic. And even though I'm okay, like this is not okay and it shouldn't be okay. And I shouldn't have to pretend to be okay to, to people please. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. And make everybody happy, but yet have to, self-sacrifice my own needs and wants and desires. How did you see that impact you like throughout your teenage years? Like what was the impact? I 
stopped feeling really. Mm-hmm. I was numb, struggled with depression, but I didn't know, right? It was like very high functioning. And that's mm-hmm. kind of the women that I work with now is mm-hmm. we could be like on the bathroom floor crying and then get up to record this podcast or go to a meeting or go to run a company or, you know, manage our households and be there for our kids. Mm -hmm. So like, we're really good at masking the pain, hiding the pain. So I was depressed, but not treated. And I didn't even really know. I remember sitting in my first psychology class in my pre-med degree, and they were talking about generalized anxiety disorder and depression and like looking at the slides like fuck this is me everyone doesn't feel this way all the time because it was always like you're fine you know you're not sad like you're fine growing up right no didn't feel like there was room for my emotions or for me to not be okay what led you into therapy in your late 20s truthfully no lie to me yeah I won't lie it was (laughs) something that my friends were doing initially. It was something that everyone in naturopathic medicine, like getting our degrees was doing. Everyone was just going to therapy. And that's why when the codependency thing came up, I initially went because it was like something everyone was doing, thinking I was normal, thinking that like I didn't realize the mom side, narcissistic stuff, dad side, alcoholism. I was in sports. My parents showed up to the games. Like they provided for me in a lot of ways. So I had no fucking idea that I was emotionally stunted in others. And yeah, I had a sexual assault by a medical doctor Mm. in my late 20s. And yeah, that kind like, of like your doctor or somebody who like a somebody in school, like a professor. No, like another local doctor just started, you know, pretended he was interested in the work that I was doing on andropause and like like male menopause and men's hormones and started dropping stopping by and dropping things off for everyone in my office and making people uncomfortable and he needed a a treatment on a Saturday. Looking back, it's like, how was I so blind? Yeah, yeah, so blind to it all. But luckily, I got away from that one, like literally ran. So tell me about the situation that led your therapist to say, I think you're codependent. I was staying in a relationship for everyone else, like that I wanted to get out of for probably about a year but my parents were like oh he's amazing and you're never gonna find anyone that loves you that way and anyways I was staying in a relationship for everybody else and so was that kind of like the unfolding of like oh here's what I have underneath the surface here no took another couple years you know I'm stubborn Mm mm-hmm kind of like listen to it. And then I was training with a doctor in California and I had crazy pelvic pain and I would get cysts. And and obviously, you know, I know now that that was my body speaking to me. That was the unresolved trauma. Uh, and he had a conversation 
with me about that. Mm. And I was like, okay, I definitely can't keep denying this or pretending like it doesn't exist. Even if I think I'm okay cognitively, like my body is still letting me know that I am not. And it's a root of, you know, Chinese medicine and naturopathic medicine and how I would approach treating a patient or a client of mine. So there was this moment of like, yeah, you're just really hypocritical and you're not going to be able to outrun this or, you know, keep yourself busy enough and succeed enough or numb enough. We need to deal with it. And he said, he's like, you know, that it's fucked up what happened to you. And I remember it kind of hit me because his language, like he wouldn't really swear. So it sort of struck me. And I thought, hmm. It might be onto something. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I guess he's right. (laughs) I guess I can't, you know, Mm. yes, I can't deny it anymore. So that's when I started deeper healing work on myself. And had you already transitioned into this being your focus at that point in time? I had, and it's funny how like the pieces came together a little bit. Mm -hmm. So I'd run a women's health clinic, like a big, successful women's health clinic, which I loved. I loved it. And I was noticing that there was something missing for them. We were balancing their hormones, getting them to sleep through the night, getting them to, you know, they had energy and they weren't relying on caffeine or nicotine or wine or any of the things like they were really healing cellularly on the cellular level, on the hormonal level. And and it was like, it's funny because that was the mirror of me. But what I was missing was the, there was this, it's called anhedonia. And it's the inability to feel pleasure or joy. And it was their unresolved trauma mirroring my unresolved trauma. So I had started in 2019. And that was when I had started to do the deeper work on myself. I'd started to look at things through that lens. So like, okay, we can't feel pleasure. We don't, we're not, even when things are really good, we're not relaxed and open and letting it in we numb we escape we wait for the other shoe to drop and I work with successful women they have a lot to be grateful for and then there's almost this shame of but I'm not why am I not enjoying this yes exactly so that was sort of the mystery that I set out to solve and it was what was going on with me And it was what was being reflected by all my clients. And it was almost a sigh of relief because once I started talking about it or asking them about it, like their happiness or what was missing, then we at least all knew we weren't alone. (laughs) I didn't know what to do about it in 2019, but at least we knew we weren't alone. So we could kind of like relax at least in that. Yeah. The relief and knowing that you're not the only one. Yes. What were some of the like common denominators that you were seeing? Because I'm sure some of them had experienced, you know, some sort of a sexual abuse during childhood, but probably not all of them. 
What were some through lines that you noticed? Patterns? I call it the superwoman complex where we all feel like we need to earn our happy, earn our joy, earn our pleasure, that we don't deserve it just because we are. We feel like we have to work for it. So lots of people pleasing, lots of over-functioning, and there's a block. There's a block to allowing ourselves to feel good in the bedroom, out of the bedroom. And we almost need to like baby step and train ourselves, like retrain our brains to allow pleasure in, to let ourselves feel good. Because if they want to sit and relax, they're not actually relaxing. Like they're thinking of a million things. Yeah. yeah, the things they need to do or the emails they need to send or, you know, maybe some of that unresolved trauma stuff is bubbling up, but then you're distracting. So and it's distracting in the, I'm going to plan a vacation or I'm going to remodel my kitchen or, you know, or the usual like day-to-day numbing behaviors. But so this superwoman complex, when we have years of over giving, years of people pleasing, years of denying our desires, suppressing our needs in favor of making sure everyone else is happy, taking the temperature in the room, started to affect their health. And that's why they were coming to me because they had health issues. But I was realizing that a lot of the health issues were because of the people pleasing, over-functioning. And a lot of them were even in like toxic relationships or repeating toxic relationship patterns, but didn't even know it. It was like me with the counselors, right? You're codependent. And, and I'm like, what the heck? And that's how, because they have so much and they're so high functioning, it's almost like it doesn't even- Register. Register. Yeah. What was the word that you used for the lack of ant? What was it? Anhedonia. And so that's not just a term. I mean, that applies to men and women, right? Universal. So it's a diagnostic criteria for major depressive disorder. And I remember when I was struggling with depression in my pre-med degree, I read it. Like I looked at the DSM and I was learning it in school for my tests And I remember thinking like, that's how I feel. That's what fits is I'm not as happy as I used to be. The things that used to make me happy don't make me happy anymore. I'm just like numb. And that's what fits. The whole diagnosis, like, yeah, kind of okay. But it didn't, it felt more like an anhedonia thing than a depression thing. And a lot of the people that I work with, men and women, feel the same. So I call it like, it's our pleasure problem. Yeah. So that's what I was going to ask you. Cause as far as like, you know, you said you typically work with, you know, the superwoman complex, but I'm sure that this manifests in men as well. And I'm curious, like what you've seen as the differences are, as far as like what's underlying it when it comes to men. I think it's a lot of the same and there's more and more men reaching out. Like I've just messaged to women for the last nine years, but my male followers has increased by 30% because I don't think it's necessarily a man woman thing. I think it's a, a human thing and an unresolved trauma thing. And just the way that we 
live our lives, it achieving, doing, overgiving, overfunctioning, and like men are raised in toxic systems where their emotional needs weren't met. They receive messaging as well, like, don't cry, don't show emotion. You know, they receive terrible messaging just from society and culture, just like women do. It might sound a little different on the surface, but the result is the same. So when we're in that state of overfunctioning of, and, and maybe like we're overfunctioning to keep busy because we don't want to deal with trauma or we're overfunctioning because we don't feel worthy. But when we're go, 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 it does something to us on the cellular level. Mm. So we're inflamed. We don't sleep well. We get hormone imbalances. We have mood issues, digestive issues, so that we have that whole health thing. And it turns off the pleasure centers in our brain. So when we're in fight or flight, the pleasure centers in our brain are turned off and they've done MRIs to show that. And when I found that research, that was a light bulb moment for me because I thought, oh, okay. So this is because I kept thinking that I was broken or there was something wrong Mm -hmm. with me, Mm -hmm. but it wasn't necessarily wrong with me, it's our physiology, it's our protection mechanism. Like if we don't feel safe, if we are hypervigilant, our body is focused on surviving. It's not focused on feeling good. So if we're in a fawn response and we're caregiving, like we're going to do things for others, like all the time, we're going to have sex out of obligation. We're going to feel pressured to be like the perfect wife, mother, et cetera. Like we're really good at giving. We're not good at receiving. Eventually we're going to end up burnt out or with some type of chronic health issue or autoimmune issue. Cause we're just primed at the over the overgiving and we don't know how to receive. So for you personally, as it relates to these issues for you, obviously there was you know, the sexual abuse that occurred, the sexual trauma, but what have you impacted as far as in your childhood and the like limiting core beliefs that you ingrained as a result of, you know, how your parents raised you? I internalized I'm an inconvenience that there are like, there's no room for me and my feelings like, or that my feelings hurt other people. So I should just keep them to myself. I feel like I've worked through a lot of these, which is good because I'm trying to remember back. They don't feel as strong. um, Yeah. They don't feel as like at the forefront. And my worth was based on my achievements. You have siblings? A younger sister. Okay. And have you guys been able to connect on this stuff at all? Yes. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Definitely. How do you feel like your experiences were different or similar? A lot of the the roots were similar. I think just like emotionally alone for both of us. Like we just both felt and lo- like I also, my parents were trying their best. They had a lot of like love them and things are even through my healing and my journey, like 
our whole family system. My mom like went to therapy and she is doing amazing and unpacking her shit and the nasty shit that her mother did to her. Like it has healed so much for all of us. So I just want to say, yeah, no, I'm big on that. It's, you know, it's our parents are a product of their upbringing as well. You know, it's like, yes. just and I think just nowhere. gaslighting was a standard for parenting in the nineties mm-hmm. and eighties. It was just like, there was no room for emotion. Like it wasn't even that it was intentional. Like I think that in some ways they thought they were doing a good job, mm-hmm. but yeah, we both struggle. My sister and I both struggle with mental health. We've had issues in the men we picked to be in relationship with. So with your mom, so she's the one that had the narcissistic mother. Was that something that you've realized and come to terms with through her healing and her sharing that with you? No, I realized it years ago. And I thought she was a narcissist or had narcissistic traits herself. I never felt like any of the big decisions in my life. I never felt supported like if it wasn't her way, it wasn't good. It was like the men, the, my career choices. Like I thought she was a narcissist for sure, but I think it was just, she was raised in that system and repeated it and didn't change it because she, I've just gone, gotten out of an extremely toxic relationship yet again. <laughs> and the support and the emotional support. Like I cannot say enough about how good that feels. And it was at the point that at the beginning of this, you know, breakup and separation that we were on the phone a couple times and she started to make it about her and how she was feeling. And I was like, no, no, Not mom, more. like this is about me and supporting me and you need somebody else to support you through this. And it's not going to be me. So you are either here for me and my daughter and you are all in or like, I will find my team and my people that are, and I have never felt more supported mm-hmm. by her than I have in the last eight months. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. That's it really is. special. It tru- like it truly is. And if you would have asked me three years ago, if this would ever be possible, I would have told you no. Wow. So for you in the, cause you've talked about that you've, you know, worked through a lot of those limiting beliefs through this last relationship. Like what have you realized still needs to be healed? I think that I needed to love me and all my parts. Not just the ones that I wanted to show or felt comfortable, right? Like the stuff that looks good. Like I needed to truly love me. And I think, unfortunately, it took somebody something so toxic to shatter like to literally break me beyond a point like there were panic attacks where I did not think I would live 
Like it was, I couldn't like, it felt like the air was getting sucked out of the room. And I mean, cognitively, I know what was going on, but just how it felt in my body, Body. I've never been so Mm -hmm. dysregulated, Mm -hmm. but in that breaking down process in the discarding of me process in the triangulation in the you know character assassination campaign that abusers so often do like I used to care about what people thought of me and through this process I've had to come to terms with that there are people that are going to be wrong about me and what went on and the abuse that I had to endure and that's okay so I needed to like literally be broken apart and put myself together and I've never felt more settled and calm in my nervous system and okay with me and not searching for like the next relationship or the next thing to complete me I for the first time in my life like I'm good (laughs) I'm so I mean there are things that are absolute chaos going on but I also am somehow oddly grounded and I think having my daughter and somebody that you have to show up for like I don't get if if I'm crumbling or having a breakdown like I don't get time off with a toddler right I had to be there to go through this and be there so for her I think that was something that it it was just like this has to happen like I need to be there for her and I am stopping this generational trauma shit like it ends with me I will not drip it down onto her I mean I'm going to do my best I'm a human but I want different for her I want her to know that she is worthy because she is and that her feelings matter and that I love her in any state that she shows up and I never ever ever want her to feel like she has to earn her pleasure and she's right now so far very She's three. She's right now very securely attached. So let's see how this goes. Fingers crossed. Yeah. Have there been, have you noticed, because with a lot of the parents in my community, have you had any experiences where her expressing her needs or you attending to her needs has triggered in you the pain of the unmet needs of your childhood? Yes, this is wild, but it's also been a very good like learning experience for me and for me to witness. So as those needs are triggered and they come up, it's funny because it's innate. Like it's, it just happens. It's like that if it's my amygdala or my limbic system, I like the fear centers or what part of my lizard brain that it comes, it's just, it's there. And it's funny because I have this moment of pause, like where I want to repeat the trauma but I have this pause and go oh like this is my shit that's not her shit this is not her fault and I can like 
breathe or tap and like use somatic tools and choose differently. And the funny thing, the funny thing is that it doesn't seem that hard. Like it's Mm. not that fucking Mm -hmm. hard to choose Mm -hmm. differently. And I'm probably like less than 10% of the time I will lose my cool or do whatever. And I repair it. I know how to repair it in a way that honors that I was dysregulated and honors her. And even at three, sometimes I can tell like she might not fully understand, but she gets the energy. She gets the the intent behind my apology. So Mm. plus the research says that you need to meet kids' emotional needs 30% of the time. Really? To have them well adjusted. Yeah. Wow. Which that does not say too fucking much about our parents. Yeah, no shit. What the hell? Yeah. Cause and even my therapist, she's like, Jordan, 30% of the time. And I'm a perfectionist, right? Or like recovering perfectionist, people pleaser. So I'm like aiming for 90. I want an A plus. She's like, just like you're good. You can fuck it up sometimes. And you're teaching her repair. Yeah. I can't remember who, what guest I had on, but she was saying how really what's more, most valuable is in those moments where you do fuck up and you repair it. And that that really is like the most valuable lessons that you can teach them. Totally. I just ran a workshop last week for the people in my membership and it's about conflict repair and about fighting and about how to fight in a long-term relationship to like honor your nervous system and attachment style and theirs. And it's like- It sounds like a great thing for us to dive into right now. Let's do it. Where should we start? So in my view of things is from like attachment and, and intimacy, Okay. Right? Like, how does this play a role in long-term relationship? And when you say intimacy, what do you mean? Okay, thank you. So I mean intimacy, not just about sex. I mean intimacy mm-hmm. in life, like 360. How do we feel seen, heard, valued, connected? Understood. In mm-hmm. and out of the bedroom. Mm-hmm. Because the way we do one thing is the way we do everything. So if things are, and I mean, I am no stranger to the trauma sex, like the sex that is amazing, but also extremely toxic because it is part of the abuse cycle. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but let's let's frame it with attachment because that's kind of, that'll be a good way to talk about it. So People with a more anxious attachment style generally have higher needs for intimacy. They want to feel close. They usually have a preference of being in a relationship. Uh huh. Hello, me, anxious attacher. As well, (laughs) as me as well. And they can get in relationship triggered by jealousy any little inconsistent (laughs) yeah any little inconsistency others boundaries like what like what do you mean you don't want to spend every single second with me (laughs) yeah space distance 
conflict how long it takes for them to get back to you in a text message did they use a period or an exclamation point yes (laughs) they use an exclamation point on the last six text messages yes exactly (laughs) but it's a period this time Mm -hmm. um so yeah like the over functioning people pleasing micromanaging surveillance of things and the other person is usually their source of safety Mm -hmm. so like if the other person's happy then they're happy a lot of times yeah those like the anxious attachers usually have a higher need for intimacy like Mm -hmm. sex wise and that emotional closeness Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and then we have more like avoidant attachers Mm -hmm. that are more dismissive and generally Mm -hmm. they have lower intimacy needs where they're valuing their space their independence more scared of you know feeling defective feeling like a failure and that nothing that they do is is good enough is kind of the themes that I see and they get triggered by right the opposite so like boundary violations and dependency somebody that needs them to feel safe so these are like being criticized too like if we said if the anxious attacher said well you used a period instead of an exclamation mark that would be triggering for the avoidant attached person and yes sometimes even really like big displays of emotion can trigger the avoidant person so research shows that people with Attachment issues, insecure attachment of any type have lower sexual satisfaction, which I, again, I would kind of argue because a lot of people that are stuck in a trauma loop have sex or they think they're having good sex, but it's, yeah, it's generally followed by some type of trauma cycle, some type of fighting or withholding or, you know, those push-pull dynamics. Oh, okay. For What do you think about this, though, when they say that they think that 50% of people are securely attached? I think that's bullshit. I also think that. Who are these people? Yeah, I don't know. I've never met them. But as I move more into secure attachment in these last seven months has been basically like a boot camp of, you know, my triggers and dealing with my wounds and looking at things really, really deep. It's just like, oh, this is what this feels like. Mm -hmm. Like I can just be good and I can just be happy for no reason. And (laughs) so I don't know, maybe they're out there and they just weren't me or weren't my clients. Yeah, exactly. People that I interact with and we repel them. Yeah, it could be. It could very well be. Well, and those when we're looking at it in relationship and I have these clients and we'll go through like we'll focus on pleasure and we'll do the healing and then when they're ready for relationship and it is secure attachment they're like this is fucking boring yes exactly oh a hundred percent like there's no drama and fighting and Mm -hmm. yeah Mm -hmm. there's no trauma sex like what the heck (laughs) so then yeah and then learning to build intimacy and have sex that grows and deepens as you get to know each other Mm -hmm. like that's something that I've had to learn and teach because 
we didn't know how to do that. We were, none of us were securely attached. So with anxious attached people and sex, it's like, they tend to be really physically affectionate. And it's like, there's never enough. There's never this limit. They just could have more and more and more. And Mm -hmm. they generally struggle to feel connected without intimacy. And they're usually pretty giving, like focusing on their partner's enjoyment, their partner's pleasure and not their Their own. own. Uh And it's so fascinating because I'll have clients that they're like, yeah, you know, I have sex. I've, you know, I can orgasm. It's good, but they have no clue what they want, what they desire, what their bodies are capable of, because it's constantly been focused on their on the other person pleasure yeah. constantly. And that would have been me for the first 30 plus years of my life as an anxious attached person. It's like total focus on the other and their enjoyment. And and then I thought like, that's what good sex was getting the feedback, like the superwoman people pleaser that I am to say like, that was amazing. That was the best ever. Then that to me was like, checkbox. That was good sex. No, now I know better. But it took a while and a lot of learning and exploring. And and we realize as an anxious attached person, how much of intimacy is just focused on the other and not, not ourselves. And we can wear people out in a relationship because if we're relying on sex as a way to feel secure and a way to gain reassurance then partners tend to feel I don't know if used is the right word but like it's not it's sex for a purpose like sex to fill a void so it's like it can be energetically draining on the partner which will make them push away and be more avoidant which would make the anxious person want more. So we're in that, in that loop. Oh yeah. And I find anxiously attached people are hypersensitive to changes in a sexual dynamic. It's like the looking like the period instead of the exclamation mark, but bedroom version. Oh, absolutely. I fucking sure am. So, okay. So what about when we take it into like conflict resolution and dealing with that? So one of the things that I've learned through this quest of how do we feel more pleasure and how do we allow it to be okay for our nervous systems to feel pleasure when we are so used to feeling pain and abandonment and fear. And a lot of us feel like if we feel good, then it's going to be followed by something bad because we're so used to the trauma cycle. Mm. So when it comes to conflict, It's really about learning, like, how do we tolerate more pleasure and how do we also tolerate more pain? Because when we go into ancient Chinese medicine, Taoism, like the ancient Chinese study of sex and sexuality and Tantra, it's about being present with Mm. high sensation. Okay. And I find a lot of trauma survivors, we are very good at numbing and not being present. Mm-hmm. And the three things that we need for sex and intimacy is pleasure, presence, and connection. We're not good at those things. So with conflict, 
we need to learn how to be present with high sensation in our bodies without numbing, without checking out, like feeling the feelings until they are complete. And it sounds super simple, but I used to think my feelings or deny them or suppress them or just not even think that I had them at all. Right. Cause when you're a kid and it's like, stop crying or don't cry, you're upsetting your mother. Then I never felt like my emotional experience was allowed or welcome. I couldn't even name a feeling like, okay, mad, sad, happy, but like, and was I ever truly happy? Did I ever fully let that in and receive it? No, no, I didn't like maybe when I was a kid, but then there was years of just like numb, just like one note or like maybe a couple notes, but there was never high, high highs and also the, the low lows. So what I like to teach and I'm summarizing, cause this is like a whole day yeah, of course. Yeah. workshop that I do. But if I'm the more anxious person and my partner is more avoidant that, and we've had a conflict and we find it triggering, I'm going to want to pursue and fix, and they're going to want to avoid yeah, it. Have, and exactly. Yeah. So what are ways that we can honor both of our nervous systems and move into repair? So an example would be, you know, taking a break, we're going to reconvene in an hour, and the anxious attached person can do things to soothe themselves, like take a bath, journal, whatever works, and the avoidant person can do their avoidant thing and you can reconvene. I like something and this depends on the relationship and that I dynamic how big this conflict was, but going for a walk, holding hands and not saying a word, like agreeing to not talk about it, to not discuss it, but you are still there in it together. That one can work really well for people. And we know and are that, we are we then revisiting it? I mean, we're yes. not just like totally avoiding. Yes. No, it. that was our break time to regulate our nervous systems to try and get back into a regulated state. We're not going to avoid it and sweep it under the rug because then we're just going to trip over the lump later. Yeah, no shit. Yeah, and that walking, like any bilateral movement, where both like opposite sides of our body is working at the same time helps heal trauma with EMDR yes exactly so that's why I said like walking holding hands we're releasing oxytocin the connection hormone so it's like I'm teaching strategies that will help our nervous systems our neurochemicals to repair to reconnect What do you feel like is a reasonable amount of time? And obviously I know it depends on the conflict, but like what is a reasonable compromise as far as like how long are we taking a pause like for the the avoidant to like have some time to settle in versus, you know, I know for me, I just want to hash it out right away. But like, what is a, what is a good compromise? Yeah. And it's hard to quantify would you say like one hour to 24 hours? I, yeah, I would, but it depends on how big's the conflict. Like how, how big was this trigger, this wound that was opened up? And I, I think 
days or weeks. Like if a person's needing that much time to regulate themselves and they need to be doing some work, some therapy. And it also like this whole don't go to bed mad. Okay. Mm -hmm. I love that in theory, but what if this trigger happens at 11 at night night. or like you're both like, are you going to fight until two in the morning? We've all done it. Where does it get anyone? Yeah. (laughs) So sometimes like a longer pause, just given the situation is okay. And learning like, how can I feel good? How can I turn the pleasure centers on in my brain for myself? Like it's so empowering when you're able to do that and you don't have to fix it. You can sit in the uncomfortability for longer. It's like, it's the best ever to not feel like we have to fix it right away. So yeah, I don't know. Yeah. An hour to 24 hours seems good, but sometimes like I have clients that travel so much for work. So some, or they're surgeons and they work shift work. So sometimes a couple days is just the way that it's got to be. So how can you care for yourself and feel good and do things that feel good in the meantime, instead of staying in your stress response until it's quote unquote resolved and the avoid and attacher needs to work on like coming back online, getting like activating their nervous system so they can from shutdown from freeze so they can be present and deal with what's coming up. And when we are in relationship with somebody that has an active addiction, that has a personality disorder, none of these things apply. And I just got out of a relationship where I would pretzel myself. I would stand on my head. I would do all the things. I would regulate my nervous system. I would give the space. I would, and like, it was never. It doesn't matter. It never doesn't fucking matter. It doesn't fucking matter. So I also learned or had to learn, like, when does this go from like toxic? And sometimes there's two very well-meaning people in a toxic relationship and they just need tools and you give them tools And they're like having the best sex ever. They are reconnected. And then there's relationships that is like toxic, borderlining, abusive. And it doesn't matter. The tips, the tricks, the techniques, it's not going to work because like one person is set on it not working because of the addiction. Completely incapable. Yeah, because they're just so incapable of healthy love and presence and being connected like oh maybe if I say it the right way it'll go through no it's not if I say it this way or if I wait for the right time or you know if I use this communication formula nope sometimes sometimes that person is just so incapable of putting their parts together brain is hijacked of regulating their nervous system. Yeah. Yeah. They just don't want to heal or they're not capable of healing. So another thing, and this can be kind of our last topic before we wrap up, but one of the things that you talk about often is like, am I being needy or am I just expressing my needs? And what do you think are some good like things to consider there when assessing that out? Love this. This and this is a huge one. I have an entire podcast on this. So if yeah, if sure. this is the topic that somebody wants more on 
I think that nine times out of 10, a person, especially like a superwoman and somebody that's inherently like overgiving, people pleasing, they're not actually needy. Their needs are just not being met. And mm-hmm. how I like to look at that is our feelings, our desires, and we need to do the work. We need to clean our side of the street and know what those are and cleanly, right? Like not a desire mm-hmm. to, we're not overgiving out of fear because we're scared they're going to leave, or we're not doing it, giving too much to manipulate or control, which when we have not dealt with our shit, those are common things to do. I have done it. No shame. Probably will do, do it, it later today because I'm a human. <laughs> yeah. but we get so so suppressed so gaslit from so many areas that we accept crumbs we survive on crumbs we walk on eggshells and when we ask for like a piece not just a little crumb like we want like a the a piece of pie a whole damn low or the whole pie the I whole have merch fucking- that says I fuck the crumbs I want the whole damn loaf oh I need one if that feels foreign to us we don't know how to ask for it we don't know how to receive it and this like the mm. foundation of the work that I do is what do I desire how do I ask for it and how do I receive it and our feelings are always our feelings. No one gets to argue with that. And learning a process of self-validation, because for us, it often becomes about somebody did something that was hurtful or they didn't show up for us in a way that we needed them to. And then the problem becomes about our feelings about the issue, not the actual issue itself. So the actual issue itself never gets addressed because it becomes about we were too needy. We asked when they were tired, whatever the gaslighting situation may be. So then we leave feeling like confused and unresolved. And then it grows, like the need grows within us. So sometimes we, and it could come out sideways potentially. So our feelings are always valid and we want to work through them and own them. And, and sometimes we have a feeling and we're triggered, but it's about our childhood shit. And it's not really about the situation that's happening in front of us. So, but the feeling is still valid and our desires and needs are valid. And we are taught to want less. We're taught to survive on crumbs. So even asking for a slice feels foreign to our nervous systems. And a lot of times we don't even want to ask because it feels so fucking vulnerable and scary to do it. So we don't, but then that suppression comes out as neediness but it's not we're not really needy we're asking to we're usually asking for more but when you've been overgiving and you step back or you start setting boundaries and start to kind of like make it a little healthier of course it's not going to be met well Because you were doing it. It's like, she's got it. She's got everything. Like, I can just go do fun shit that I want to do. So she was planning the dates and she was taking care of it all. So why do I like... Exactly. And then all of a sudden you pull back on that. Then it's like, wait, what's going on? So, and a lot of my work is just helping people navigate through that. Like, what is, what do I desire? How do I ask for it? 
how do I receive it? And learning that we desiring more than the crumbs that we've been accepting and like that, and that's our work. And we have to own that. Like we co-created the dynamics that we're in. Mm -hmm. So, and how do we deal with the turbulence when we upset that dynamic and when we do it through pleasure and through joy and through feeling good, it's just a different energy where like people want to be around you and it feels good and people are less likely to, to fuck with you when you're like in your power of desire and joy and pleasure. So I love it. Cause it's like, it's easier and it's more fun than you, than you think, than going back through all the trauma yeah. sometimes. Absolutely. Well, this has been so awesome. What are you jazzed about right now, my dear? Oh my goodness. Uh, so many things. I um looking forward to 2024. I just have such an optimistic feeling about it. I'm planning my retreats. Like I'm just I'm excited. I'm excited for presence, pleasure, connection in 2024. Those are my words. Do you want to promote anything? Just your podcast? What else? I'll include everything in the show notes. I am excited about my Black Friday deal for Pleasure Principles, my foundational program. First time ever, we're doing monthly payment plans. You get two live calls with me per month, and it's just foundational for better sex and more connected relationships. Hits on everything that we chatted about today, so haven't done this before not going to do it again. I'll send you all the link. And if you want to learn more about me, my work, the Pleasure Principles podcast is another great place to start. This has been so good. I really appreciate you. you. 